the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived uh, about a century ago, and he was a man who lived in Germany, was an influential leader in a troubling time in Germany during the rise of the power of Adolf Hitler. He died by the hands of the Germans at the age of 39, just days before World War II had ended. And in his adult life, he made a couple of trips to the United States where he spent a lot of time in the Northeast and maybe a little, or a little bit of time down in the South. And he would go back and he would write about the influence, the influence the black church had on him. That when he was in America, he would visit the black church and it is what redeemed his belief in the power of worship. That in the black church, he sensed that these people are singing songs and like the way they sing them and the emotion they bring into the worship, like these people believe what they're singing. So he went all over New York City searching for, uh, searching for record stores where he could find albums of black gospel music that he could take back to Germany with him. When he goes on to make a quote of just his reflection on the South where one day he said, I still believe that the spiritual songs of the Southern Negroes represent some of the greatest artistic achievements in America. This is a guy who sat at the feet of a lot of people who lectured, and for him, being a great theologian, he was a lecturer when it came to who it is who redeemed his belief in the power of worship and singing. It was the black church. And the thought of him taking back records from black gospel music from the United States back to Germany for his disciples over there to listen to, and that was a music that sustained some of those people in Germany. I appreciate every tradition anywhere in the world that's lifting up the name of Jesus and sometimes doing it in a way that is speaking into their heritage and giving voice to their own culture. And I think there's, powerful, there's something powerful about like when we're in spaces where people believe what they sing. And I think Kip models this for us so well that Kip believes in the lyrics that he's trying to lead us in every Sunday. And even if it's stuff he's trying to live into, like he believes what he's, he belie- he believes what he's trying to lead us in. So when you look in the Bible about worship, the Bible talks very little about, uh, about formulas and worship flows and styles. The Bible talks very little about it because what the Bible wants you to know, it's not so much how you worship or the notes you hit, it's the God we worship. That is the center of it all. So the Apostle John is often, we often attribute the Gospel of John to the Apostle John, First and Second and Third John, and also Revelation. And in Revelation, he paints some worship scenes for us. And I had a mentor years ago, and he challenged us. He said, if, if you're singing a worship song and you can insert your, your, the name of your boyfriend or girlfriend in the place of God, and it makes sense, you may need to find better worship songs that have a little more depth to them. And the worship scenes you have in the book of Revelation, you're not able to insert your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. You're not able to insert them in it. Listen to some of these worship scenes in the book of Revelation that John paints for us. In Revelation 4, verse 8, the four living creatures and each of them six wings are full of eyes all around and inside. Remember, this is just a vision. Don't get caught up in that. Day and night without singing, here's what they sing. Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
In Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 14, you get another scene. It says, They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God's saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests, serving our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Revelation 7, verses 11 and 12 says this, And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And the Apostle John, who we often say wrote Revelation, and most people believe also wrote the Gospel of John, only has one time in the Gospel of John where worship is expounded upon. And we referenced it last week. It's in this story in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets this woman at a well and there's a conversation happening. And in verse 16 it says this, Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And I want to stay there just for a moment. Because if you're reading this for the first time, and you're seeing this encounter Jesus has with this woman, this woman trying to figure out who Jesus is, Jesus has just told her things about her life that are full of pain and brokenness. Like, who else knows this kind of stuff? And if you're reading this for the first time, and you pause right there, how do you think this story's going to go? You would think this woman's going to respond to Jesus and say, how did you know these things? Or what, are, what were my husband's names? Or something about that event. But instead, her response is asking questions about worship. So here's how it goes. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. The same man who received a vision from God of these unbelievable worship scenes in the book of Revelation is the same man that tells you a story about Jesus encountering a woman at a well full of brokenness. And in a way, very kindly told her, worship's not about a place. Worship's not about trying to get worship right. Worship is about the Spirit of God touching down in people's lives and people worshiping God in spirit and truth. And in a way, what Jesus is saying is, you're invited to be one of those. Like the power of God wants to move in this world, inviting people into a relationship with God where we get to worship in spirit and in truth. Yet too often, worship becomes about people more than God. Worship becomes about Christians 
more than Christ. Worship becomes more about preferences than it is who it is sitting on the throne. And when this happens, we're no longer worshiping God, we're worshiping worship. And the Bible calls that idolatry. Now, I want to show you an image that some of you will know and some of you have no clue what this is. This is a jukebox. This was Spotify and iTunes before we had them, right? That you could go into a restaurant or a public place, pop in a few coins and all these different genres and all these different songs, and you could pick the one you wanted everyone else to hear. Now, some of you remember this. You remember what it's like walking into a place, popping in a coin, and you get to pick what song it is you want, to, you want played. Now, today we have, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been on road trips, and like somebody has to choose what's going to be played over the speaker system in the car or the bus. I know we have kids going to Winterfest this next weekend, and if there's a movie that is played over everything, somebody has to make that decision. There has to be some kind of superiority in a vehicle, right? Like, what are we going to listen to? What podcast are we listen to? And rarely do you do something that everybody's on board with. I think one of the greatest inventions ever was the shuffle button. Because I'm all for the element of surprise. Because in my phone, the genres of music, I have everything from some contemporary music. I have some Hillsong. I have a little bit of U2. I got some old school hip-hop. I got some Adele, a little couple of Justin Timberlakes. I, like, I mean, everything. So I like the element of surprise, going from one genre to another. Casey likes to kind of stick with an album. Let's just trust an album. Stick with it. Let it perform. Let it do its thing. And if you go back to the image of a jukebox, just for a minute, if you'll go back to that one, what if this is what we had when you walked in the doors of the church? You could put in coins, and you could make suggestions of what songs it is you want Kip and the praise team to lead us in. Do you know how much money we could make in the church? <laughs> like, we would never, ever be behind with our budget at all. Like, everybody want a piece of that. Think about just in a room of this size, like all the multi being a multi-generational church and the diverse diversity in a lot of different ways. I mean, we would have people who are like popping in coins, like older hymns, more old hymns, the better, right? And then you'd have some who are like Hillsong, Elevation, Maverick City. You get a few CC Winans in there. You may even get one or two Kanye's, the newer Kanye, not the older Kanye. And then we would hope that that jukebox should spit, out, spit it out in the form of acapella music where we could sing all of it, right? <laughs> the, word, the Bible cares very little about the style of worship, but if you think about it, a lot of churches are known more for their style of worship than they are for their theology. They're known more for what is the flavor of their worship service than, than what their belief system is. And it's kind of funny when you think about it, like when you think, like a lot of people are like, churches are known by their style. So Churches of Christ, is it a style that has one song leader with no praise team, a song leader with a praise team that's dispersed throughout the church, a song leader with a praise team on the front row, or a song leader with a praise team that's up on the stage? Or is their style, is it more happy clappy or more free or stoic, like you're going to a funeral? And what is the style that they have? Is it charismatic, progressive, traditional? What is it? And it is kind of funny, especially those of us who've been in church very long, the things that have labeled us as progressive or liberal throughout the years. Because some of you remember the days, what could label you as a liberal church? Put a gym on your church and see what happens. Add a kitchen to your church see what happens. And maybe some of you remember when clear podiums became a thing. 
Like on the stage, you no longer had your big pulpit that looked like a judge was holding court, right? It was like a clear podium. And I mean, this is a slippery slope. And some of you remember when the overhead projectors came into the church. It's like, so now we're not looking down at songbooks. We're looking up at a screen to sing. And I mean, what? Overhead projectors one week, we're handling snakes, snakes the next week, right? It's like, the things that could label us in these kind of ways. I want to show you a few words and phrases that show up in the Bible and just the number of times they do. You never have the phrase old song show up in the Bible. New song shows up around nine times in the Bible. Now, I want to be really careful. I'm not saying that the Bible's anti-old song. It's just every old song, guess what it was at one point? A new song. And the Bible is an anti-old song and all for a new song, but when you see new song pop up, especially in Psalms and Revelation, what it's declaring is there is this new move of God that has to be sung about. This new move of God that people need to know about. And I know we make a big deal sometimes about singing or sing or song. For some of you, it is the primary way you connect to God. And I just want you to see this. I mean, throughout the Bible and in the New Testament, sing shows up 122 times, only eight times in the New Testament. Singing, 20 times in the Bible, two times in the New Testament. Song, 24 times, six times in the New Testament. And I want to be careful how I even talk about this. I'm not saying the New Testament isn't interested in singing. But when you read about singing in the Bible, it's not about are you doing four-part harmony or what are you singing about. It's, it's who you're singing to. It's that Jesus is the center of it all. So the word throne shows up in the Bible around 170 times. Around 50 in the New Testament. Around 40 times in the book of Revelation alone. And I want you just to think about what that might mean. Is that the Bible ends. And you may read the Bible and you may think there are moments throughout the Bible that you're asking, okay, who is on the throne? Is Satan on the throne? Who's on the throne? Are kings in the Old Testament, are they on the throne? And the Bible ends... Just making this big declaration, there is one throne and Jesus is on the throne. And throughout Revelation, it pops up over and over and over again. And I want to stay on that slide just for a moment. Because I've had a chance to do many weddings. And occasionally in a wedding, I also end up being the wedding planner. Because there may not be a wedding planner... So whoever's doing and officiating the wedding sometimes has to help know, get people to, where do you stand? And a lot of times, like for me, like the number one rule of weddings, it starts with this. All attention is on the bride. If you want to know like where you're supposed to face or what your eyes are supposed to be watching, you watch the bride. Where the bride goes, you go. When the bride comes up on a stage, your posture shifts to where you are facing the bride. If that bride decides to walk around the sanctuary, the worship center twice, you follow her. If she gets all the way up to the altar and realizes she left something in her car, you are following the bride everywhere she goes. And the Bible talks about the church being the bride of Christ. Multiple times that the church is the bride of Christ and the church is the bride that Jesus is proud of and Jesus wants to fight for and Jesus is made beautiful because of what Jesus has done. But in the Bible, you don't see Jesus pointing at the bride when it comes to worship. It's the bride who is pointing to Jesus. He is where the attention is. Listen to some of the language that pops up in the book of Revelation. 
in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2 through 4, and again in verse 6. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Cornelian. And listen to the phrases. Around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones. Around the throne and on each side of the throne. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 11, it's all the angels stood around the throne. The scene of Revelation is that Jesus is the center of it all. It's not about style, formula, forms, trying to get worship right, even trying to get the church right. It's Jesus is the center of it all, and we are around, we're around Jesus. These are the images that are painted. I remember years ago, I, the story, A.W. Dykus, he was a scientist. This guy lived at the turn of the 20th century, early in the 1900s. He was a scientist. He was an inventor. He created a lot of things. He's the one who created and came up with the blinker, that thing on your car next to a steering wheel that when you hit it, it lets other people know you're turning left and the right, left or right. He invented it. He was also a preacher. He was also a songwriter. And on April 8th of 1966, and some of you may remember this, Time Magazine released a magazine that on the front cover, it was this, Is God Dead? It was the first time in the history of Times Magazine that an image or picture didn't make it on the cover. It was just words, three words, is God dead? And the article wasn't arguing so much that God didn't exist at all. It was arguing that God is lifeless. God created the world, set it up, but now God's lifeless. And that same year, A.W. Dyckus wrote a song. And the song he wrote was our God, he is alive. Right. Our God who created man right, from dust. And in many ways, this song became the Church of Christ anthem. Am I right? And I know in this church, we have people who were raised with a lot of different flavors and branches of Christianity, churches of Christ, Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Catholic. We have people coming into this church who grew up in a lot of different forms of Christianity. For churches of Christ, 728B meant something to a lot of us. And I'm not just doing code language right now, because any, any branch of Christianity, you had code language too. Like you had traditions that were a part of who you are that nobody else would have known about. 728B, and I don't know how we ever started throwing A and Bs on numbers. It meant something. Now, I remember too, in my lifetime, there were three different songbooks that formed our church. And any of you who were raised outside of Churches of Christ, you had your own songbooks too. I remember the gospel, uh, the church gospel songs and hymns. And I remember songs of the church. And the one I remember most was songs of faith and praise. And I know I probably missed some, and don't come at me like I missed some, because I did, all right? But every 20 years, 20 or 30 years, there would be a new edition of songs. And I can remember, even as a kid, all the conversations that would happen uh, in hallways and in aisles as people were looking through the new editions, unhappy with it. Because now the numbers were different and some songs didn't appear and there were older songs who didn't make it and too many new songs that made it in. And I realized at that point there were some people who loved their songbooks more than they loved their Bibles. It, is, it, became like, it became like the Bible of the church. Last year in our church, Kip did a little research for us. In 2022, we sang around 130 different songs on Sunday mornings. 
So for anybody who thinks we sing the same songs all the time, in 2022, we sang 130 different songs. And of those 130, around a third of them were written before 1994, which means they were at least 30 years old. And around a third of them were written around 1994 to around 2005. And around a third of them have been written since 2005, which is a pretty blended repertoire that Kip is putting together for us. Old and new, young and old. And here's my posture. When I'm at my best, this is my posture. Like when it comes to worship, when I'm at my best, is that almost every Sunday morning, there is a song that just doesn't do it for me. It's not my favorite. I don't really connect to it. But when I listen to those lyrics and I hear people sing it, I know that there is somebody in this church who is having a divine connection. Therefore, I choose to sing the song with all I have because somebody's connecting to God through it. Now, when I'm not at my best, I can even be the person who chooses, oh, I don't really like this one. I really love this one. And worship becomes about worship and not about God. Uh, I just chose four songs. Four songs that mean a lot to me. And every single person in this worship experience could do that. I love when we sing the line of the song in Christ alone, of no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. I love the last line of, Lord, we come before thee now. This line gets me every time to heal the sick, the captive free. Let us all rejoice in thee. Isn't that what we want? What we want? This is what Suzanne prayed for earlier today. I love the line in Living Hope, a newer song we sing. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your very body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring line declared the grave has no claim on me. And I love the older hymn, the first line of it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This last year, I've had a chance to be a part of different worship environments. It seems like every year I end up in a place where I'm able to speak at a, some church camp or youth rally or youth event where there may be a, a thousand plus teenagers in a room who will stand for 30 to 40 minutes for the entire time of praise. And they're expressive. And there'll be times where hundreds of kids have their hands lifted up to the heavens and I enter into a worship experience like that and leave from it knowing I've, I've experienced the presence of God. And last year, I also had a chance to speak at a family, uh, a family retreat for a church where the average age was probably 70, and I'm not joking, all right? And some Wednesday night opportunities at churches where the average age may be like 83. And, and sometimes in some of those settings, there is one song leader who stands up before people. And people may stand up during the first song, maybe not. Usually during the very last song, they may stand up, but not a lot of standing. And I leave those worship experiences knowing I've encountered the presence of God. And a couple of times every year, whether it's with independent Christian churches, some of our cousins or churches of Christ who've chosen to incorporate instruments, I end up in a worship setting where people are worshiping with instruments and I see people and I hear stories about people are coming to Jesus and are being baptized every single week in their worship experiences. And then I was a part of an event in Oklahoma where a larger church that is a cappella rarely do they have a month where someone isn't coming to the Lord and being baptized in one of their worship services. Not too long ago, I was sitting in the office of Steve Gaines, Pastor Gaines at Bellevue. 
Bellevue Baptist. And I was sitting in his office with a prominent, influential, well-known uh, pastor in the United States. And this other pastor, not, not Pastor Gaines, this other pastor was asking me just who, who you are and where you preach and where you pastor. And I said, the Sycamore View Church of Christ. And when I did, his posture shifted. Has this ever happened to any of you? His posture shifted. And he said, oh, I know about you. You think you're the only ones going to heaven and you're the ones who sing with no music, which I think that phrase is always really funny. I always like plead ignorant. I'm like, what, what do you mean like no music? Like we make music every Sunday. What do you think we do, right? And he said, you're, you're a cult. And I said, well, there are moments we've been cultish, but a lot of us have, right? And I tried to explain why we're not a cult. And after explaining that, he's like, yeah, when it comes down to it, you're really a cult. And at this point, my only response was like, your mom's a cult. Like, I, I mean, that's my knee jerk. Like, <laughs> that's my knee jerk response in moments like that. Uh, and then I wanted to fight him. But <laughs> this guy's in his 70s with hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. So it, it may not be the best thing for my reputation or this church's reputation. All right, but we process that a little bit. Look, here's the thing, man. A little over 20 years ago, this church asked the elders of the church to study three issues. Divorce and remarriage, instrumental music, the role of women in public worship. And when I interviewed here, we had yet to study two of those three. But in 2008, I was drawn to know there's an eldership who would listen to the church and then pray and fast and seek the Lord on how to respond to the issues the church had asked the elders to study. So the church, I think the reason the church was asking the elders to study instrumental music, it wasn't because you had a whole church of people advocating for it. You had a church of people saying, what is our posture to other people in the world, other people in the city, when it comes to relationships and evangelism? What is our posture and how do we respond to people when their first response is, you're those people who don't have music in your church? And you can read the position paper online. It's about three pages. But there's this one paragraph that I think summarizes it all. And here's what it says. We recognize that many in churches of Christ have thought and practiced a cappella music as a gospel requirement. And while we enjoy and will continue having Sunday a cappella assemblies, we do not regard those who practice otherwise as outside the kingdom of God. And we do not regard the use of instrumental music, even in the Sunday assembly, a matter of fellowship or salvation or gospel truth. And I think that is so good. Because it says we love what we do on Sunday mornings. And we think we do a cappella really well. We love the participatory nature of it. It's unique. It's special. It's meaningful. And we also, it also allows us that there are moments when we may have a video to show on a Sunday morning in a church service, and having a little instrumental music behind it is much better than having three minutes of oohs and ahs going on behind a video. And there may be moments that we use instrumental music, not lyrics, but just to kind of cover a prayer moment. Because as we see prayer cultures growing around the world, it's often just lightly, silently covered by some music. 
and that there are some worship experiences we have throughout the year where we are able to bring instruments into it and there are people in this church who are super gifted, who can use those gifts in those kind of ways. And we're grateful that we get to do that. Now, I don't think I have to argue this, but maybe I do. I don't think I have to argue that we are still in the middle of the greatest worship revolution that this world has ever known. In the last 30 years, there has been more music produced and I know it goes back to 70s and 80s, but really in the 90s, you had these worship groups producing so much worship music and high quality. I mean, CCM, Contemporary Christian Music, is this booming industry where now you have worship bands, not just performance bands, worship bands like Elevation and Maverick City and Hillsong and Passion and, and the Gaithers who've been around forever, like you ha who are packing out not just worship centers our size, but FedEx Forum and basketball arenas and football stadiums and thousands of people who are going to experience this music. And I get the argument. I get the argument that people make that today there are some people who it's not content from a sermon that draws them into a worship experience or a church, but it is a worship experience that draws them into a place to hear content. That they hear music on the radio that's being released. I mean, used to, we got a songbook every 30 years. Now, every single month, there's new worship music coming out that's forming and shaping not just a generation, but generations. And I get the argument of evangelism and what this may mean for the next generation. And I also get the argument of the beauty and simplicity of what we get to be a part of every Sunday. Of participating with our voices to make music to God. I get it. I think Relevant Magazine, they had a little piece on worship wars a couple of years ago. And they said it like this. We can all use a few pep talks in our lives. And if it comes with a soundtrack, so much the better. If turning on Eye of the Tiger before you go ask your boss for a raise works for you, be my guest. But if the church wants to start competing with mainstream music for those sort of you go girl and you know, dudes, you know, rock anthems, they're going to lose every time. But what the church can do, that Top 40 Radio cannot do, is actual worship. So real quick. I think we have learned, and I'm just, not just talking about Sycamore View, I think we're, we have learned as local churches around the world that there is a big difference between indoctrinating and discipling. And sometimes we have called discipling, and what we're really doing is indoctrinating. That we take traditions that we love and sometimes hold them up on the same level as sound doctrine in a church. And if people don't believe us, we, and I'm not just talking about churches of Christ, we make them into heaven and hell issues. There's a big difference between trying to indoctrinate people or share with people some of the traditions and practices we have, but it's not on the same level as confession and surrender and baptism and living out the Great Commission in the world. And let me stay on that slide just for a moment because I, I am convinced that if we were to find a first-generation Christian who knew very little about the story of God, and we gave them a Bible and sent them away somewhere for one month, and all they had was Genesis through Revelation, and not a study Bible, no podcast to listen to, just the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and we sent them away for a month to read the Bible and then report back to us what you think about worship, I don't think anybody would return saying what we got from worship is that acapella is the only music that is pleasing to God. 
or that what we get from the Bible is something about styles, preferences, or formulas. I think they would return and say, Jesus is worth worshiping. That's what the Bible points to. Here are five things, and they're really simple. Five things I've come to believe about worship. They're really simple. Worship's about Jesus, not us. Worship is more than how it makes us feel. Worship is more than style, formula, and preference. Worship is more than trying to get it right. Worship prepares us for engagement. And if I were to finish that sentence, worship prepares us for engagement in the world. So every Sunday, we leave a message and we go straight to the table, the place of commitment, of dedication. And today at the table, can we think about this? In Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10, an image is painted that they sing a new song. That you are worthy to take the scroll, open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God's saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign forever. There is one throne, and the one on the one throne is the one host. And we are around that. And around that throne are many different expressions of love for Christ. So will you bow your heads and close your eyes? A reminder, we'll have an elder up front, Mark Powell, and an elder in the back to receive you from, for prayer. And I'll be over here to my left as we go to the table. And if you're a guest, we have six tables with the bread and cup. And God, here's our prayer. It's to be reminded in this moment, Lord, that we are not saved through the name on a church sign, but through the name of Jesus. And we are not safe with you because of the style we worship with, but because of the one we trust in. And will you forgive us when we have made worship into something it was never intended to be? Forgive us for the things we've made it and remind us that it's all about you. And God, at this table today, remind us that Jesus, you are committed to us and we want to live lives committed to you. So we bring our whole self to this table, all we are, because you are the one who has brought and still brings your whole self to this table. Through Christ we pray. Amen.